This is the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast brought to you by Kairos Partnerships. Hey, Doug, how are you? I'm doing real good, Bob. Yourself? All right. I, I'm doing well. Christmas is rapidly approaching. We're almost there. And I know, uh, I don't know if you've ever felt this, but to me, uh, for many years, Christmas Eve was one of the harder nights of the year mm. in ministry. Mm. Do you ever get that sense? Um, well, for, for me, it was because we would always have a Christmas Eve service, and that meant me leaving the house like yeah. working in the morning, taking care of last minute details, leaving the house at like two thirty or three, mm-hmm. you know, not seeing my family mm-hmm. until they would come to the service. If they came when the kids were little, that was, you know, always a, a toss up. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And then kind of packing up everything after and being one of the last ones out. And there were times when we did church in a box, you know, and we'd have to pack everything up and then it would, it would usually be on me to take all this stuff back to wherever we, we did it. And then here's the saddest part. Then I would, it'd be like eight thirty, nine o'clock. And I would drive around trying to find something to mm-hmm. eat like, can I just need a burger or something and nobody is open. And so I cannot tell you how many Christmas Eves I was eating 7-Eleven hot dogs. Oh, man. That was, and it would just, it was, I, I could hear the Charlie Brown music playing in the background, <laughs> just kind of the sad melancholy. And I'm thinking, man, everybody else except the pastor gets to enjoy Christmas yeah. Eve. That was that was like my experience for years. Did you ever have that? Yeah, so mine is a little bit similar and a little bit different. So in the days when I worked at the mega church, I I hated Christmas Eve because that meant I was at church from about 3 in the afternoon, sometimes 2 because we had a bunch of services until about I don't know 12:30 mm. at night. And mm. I just felt you know, my family, yeah, same thing with the kids when they would come, when they would come with the children being young, it was, I'd see them briefly. But I remember Mayor saying, what's the point of even coming? I mean, we're not going to see you and I'm yeah. just going to be trying to wrangle the kids and make sure they don't set the place on fire during yep. the candlelight service. Um, <laughs> And so... I I get that. Yeah, cuz nobody wants to do nobody wants to hang with kids on Christmas no. Eve, you know, in these smaller churches. No. And so they they tend to be family services, but yeah, for those that don't have uh, you know, if your if your husband or your partner is up on the stage, yeah. you're you got the little kids by yourself and yeah, yeah. it's tough. It is it tough. It is. And then I would say in 2000 and um 2011, the end of my years in apprentice at Renew, uh I brought a Christmas Eve uh service to our community and it was great. We showed up. A bunch of people were there to help set up. We were able to leave the church set up because the mm. Boys and Girls Club we were meeting at was closed down. Um, and and we could leave it set up during the entire holiday, which was just such a gift. And so I remember mm. walking out with my family and snow falling in Lansdale, Pennsylvania on Christmas Eve mm. and going to um, Amber Asian, which is no longer there, but it was like the best Asian food <laughs> in the area is just so good. And and that, mm. that was, and then we would walk around and look at Christmas lights in the borough. And so I feel like that Christmas Eve was sort of redeemed for me. Um, 
at at um, at Renew. And some of that I think was because it was just I was able to to make it so it wasn't this huge taxing thing. And it it, it moved from being mm. a, a big production to uh to a potluck participation church body heavy experience of mm. lessons and carols and one of our elders, a guy named Dennis Bryce, yeah. man, we should have Dennis on sometime. Dennis is an ordained minister in the Scottish Presbyterian Church. And so he just, I, I have just so many amazing memories of him and his wife, Claudia, doing the kids lesson during that time. And Dennis mm-hmm. putting on like, you know, a robe and and just playing the part and um, just hearing him get excited about, uh, you know, John 1. Uh, and it, I don't know. So for me, it's like, I have hard memories and then I have some really, really good memories of the last few years. Yeah. Um, and then what the weird, weirdly for me, after my family went to bed, I normally go to, uh, either an Anglican or a Catholic mass, um, hmm. for midnight. And I just love being part of, of high liturgy and just hearing the stories. So, hmm. yeah. Yeah. Make some cookies for Santa well, too. For those. <laughs> <laughs> For those pastors out there who maybe uh, Christmas, they know Christmas Eve is coming and it can be difficult. We just want you to know we see yes. you, we know how yes. hard it is, and we appreciate all that you do yeah. to to set the table for your communities and to bring this this bountiful spiritual meal to them uh, that maybe you don't really get to partake in in the same yeah. way. And so w- we see that and we want to honor all that you do on this during this advent season our guest today is michelle ferrigno warren she is the president and ceo of virago strategies a consulting firm for civic engagement campaigns impacting poor communities she co-founded open door ministries a community development 501c3 corporation in downtown Denver to address poverty, addiction, and homelessness through social programs. With policy expertise in economic justice and human service issues, she has served as as advocacy and strategic engagement director for the Christian Community Development Association and done coalition work with the National Immigration Forum. Warren is a senior fellow with the District Bonhoeffer Institute and adjunct faculty at Denver Seminary. She and her husband live in Denver's West Side neighborhood and have three adult children. She is the author of Power, The Power of Proximity, and her newest book, Join the Resistance. We hope you enjoy this interview with Michelle Frigno Warren. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us today on the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast. We're really grateful to have you. Thank you for the invitation, Doug. I'm looking forward to our time together. Yeah. So can you tell uh, us and, and our audience a little bit about your particular calling and how you came to it? Yeah. So I, my husband and I, my husband David and I um, moved after we graduated from college, moved into a community in Dallas. I was a middle school teacher. He was going to seminary and we worked and um and lived in a community that was very different than the one that we grew up in. So I was living in an all African-American community, teaching in the local public schools. And it, and actually our community 
the apartment that I lived in was um, five was a Section Eight apartment. So it was a community that was impacted by racial and economic injustice. And as somebody who is white and comes from a very privileged background, very conservative, I would say that fundamentalism kind of turned into evangelicalism. But at least in my experience, and you know, moving into that community with uh, love for the Lord and the calling to love my neighbor, really what ended up happening was I just I learned so much from my neighbors. They did such a good job of loving me and helping me learn to be a good neighbor that my awareness and understanding of injustice and oppression of communities of color and like I said, communities that are impacted by economic barriers was really opened up. And so as a Christian, you know, I began to look at my theology and praxis in very practical ways. And just one thing led to another. My husband and I moved back up to Denver where my family is from. And we started a transitional home for homeless teen girls in 96. And the next year started a community development corporation called Open Door Ministries that is church-based and really follows the lead of the church and the community on how we're going to engage issues that keep our community from flourishing. So that is whatever is individual restoration, spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally, a lot of addiction recovery to social restoration. A lot of times we refer to that as social justice. How can we as a, as a community work to change things? And then being the good mathematician that I am and logic and trying to figure out how do we get into this place, sort of beating my head against a wall into the language that we now know back then we didn't know that in the early nineties was systemic injustice. And so, yeah, so I just started joining our community in, in a very holistic way from, you know, leading worship and walking alongside children's church and, and just the development of deep spiritual um, maturing and discipleship and recognizing that that compels you to do things, including um, advocacy. And so, yeah, there's a lot to that story that we may unpack, but, but right now that's, probably all I should share, but yeah, just loving my neighbors in a community and, and working together to make sure that we all flourish. So all of that has culminated in you writing a a couple of different books, but your most recent one is join the resistance, step into the good work of kingdom justice. Uh, I'm wondering, just give us like, what, why did you write this book? What's the main thrust of it? Give us the the 30,000 foot overview yeah. if you would. Well, thank you. Um so really it's just I'm a, I have a heart for peace. You know, I want to see the kingdom of God in context, shalom, where everything is restored and nothing is broken and to me peacemaking is not peacekeeping. You know, we don't just try to keep everything at a simmering illusion of peace, but we really see the evil, we hear the evil, we speak the evil, we stay present in the evil, and we work towards its repair. In order to be able to do that, you have to have a commitment to the work of resistance. And so I, in my book, I talk about just the theology and praxis of of resistance, that we stand on the shoulders of the prophets who came before us, who literally foretold the heart of God to the leaders of that day, to the people of the day, some to their own peril, um, but really were faithful stewards of God's heart and spoke into that space boldly. And then I talk a lot about Jesus, um, the prophet God, who came to earth and showed us 
a better way forward and spoke very strongly and resisted the way the Pharisees were interpreting the heart of God and really just blew it open and you know announced that a new kingdom was here and present in him. And so, yeah, so I wanted to really help honestly, pastors, I teach at Denver Seminary, I'm, you know, in ministry, I wanted to really help us have a formation that when we see the pain and injustice in the world, that we actually have the equipment, that there's really, we don't have to be afraid, we don't have to stay on the sidelines, but that we should be leading the charge alongside people in our community. So the reason it's join the resistance is because of a personal philosophy of ministry. And it's not just mine, but that people who are closest to the pain, people who are presently in are doing the work. A lot of, there's a lot of things that we, that somebody like me as a, a white um, ally can really, I don't want to start something new. I want to join the work that's already happening. And the black church is, you know, the whole the black church, the creation of the black church was a, was an act of resistance. If you study the, the, the roots of the AME church, but there's so much that the black church can teach us that people in communities that are organizing can teach us. And I wanted to create both a theological and practical guide for us to step into what I call the work of repair. So injustice does not just happen. It doesn't repair itself. We don't fall into that work. We actually intentionally step into it. And it is a good light um, bringing and salt bringing work of kingdom justice. I feel like I have two questions. Sorry, Bob, I, I see you jumping at the microphone, but let me let me hit, hit this uh, really quick. So two questions that come to my mind, you know, you, you talk about that kingdom, kingdom justice and and I love that that term repair. Can you talk to us a little bit about like maybe an example of how that like what that repair looks like, what that requires mm -hmm. of the past? Mm -hmm. Well, I think I, I also kind of mentioned at the beginning, repairing something, you have to admit it's broken. And some of it is we we see sort of disruption in our world and we see people crying out. And sometimes if it's not if it's not directly impacting us, we are are skeptical to even believe anything is broken. And so I think the very first practical way that we can address repair is to admit something is broken and learn about its brokenness. You know, we have this phrase of the, oh, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. And that's why I even brought it up is we actually need to see it. We need to hear it. We cannot close our ears to it and we need to speak it. And, and, and part of it, that repair, you cannot have repair without honesty and truth telling. And so that's why we have to join people who are crying out, whether publicly in the streets or in private and say, let me learn a little bit more from you. So my first book, and I don't want to talk about it too much, of course, because we're here to talk about the second book, but you can't repair things you don't understand. That's just not possible. And so, but you're never going to understand it unless you become proximate to it. And so we don't, I don't work on issues. I am in a community that is impacted by economic and racial injustice. 
And so this is my family. This is my, you know, these are my neighbors. This is my church. And I have joined them and they have welcomed me in. And that power of proximity, which is the title of my first book, enabled me and others who lean in to move beyond an awareness to an actual action that is in solidarity with a community. And this particular message around join the resistance is if you can't fix a problem you don't understand and you can't understand it from a distance after you lean in, what am I supposed to do next? Because now I'm really seeing the pain. And so if you're going to injustice, if it doesn't just happen, what does repair look like? Well, it, it means you join in with the work. And I've noticed just hesitancy. Most of my work around advocacy has been with white evangelical pastors around the country, started in my own city and then grew around the nation because of what I'll just say Martin Luther King Jr. in his letters to a Birmingham jail talked about the white Christian moderate and how frustrated he was. When you jump to today, that is another group of people, the white Christian moderate. And so how can we as white, you know, under that moniker of white Christian moderates, how can we really understand the sense of urgency and join others with courage so that injustice doesn't have to be screaming without confrontation. It it seems like resistance comes first and then repair. Mm-hmm. And I love the idea of joining the resistance. It's it's very uh Star Wars adjacent. It, it brings it's true. Up, if you put the hashtag you know, join the resistance, that's what you're gonna see. I'm hoping I get a few bumps yes, on that. Yes. <laughs> I'm I'm wondering just for our audience, you know, uh, the word resistance brings, it's going to bring up different things in the minds of different people who hear it. What do you Mm -hmm. want pastors? What do you want Christians to hear Mm -hmm. when they hear that word resistance? What does it look like today? When I hear the word resistance and think about the message that I'm trying to steward right now, um, for the church, I actually think of the prophet Amos. And I think about his metaphor in Amos 5, let justice roll down like a river and righteousness like a never ending stream. When I think about that, I just, I feel the the Hebrew word Selah coming on. You know, I feel this release and shalom, this kingdom of God in context that, that that would be the status quo. What a wonderful world it would be, right? And that's not the status quo. And so what are the people of God going to do with the reality that justice, that Hebrew word mishpat, that doesn't roll down, that mishpat really speaks to the restoration of the whole, restoring people and structures and systems to their most productive place. And then righteousness, the Hebrew word tzedakah, which is really together. It's almost like righteousness and justice kiss. Because to be righteous is to do justice. When you, when you look in the context of the Old Testament, to when you put tzedakah into action, it becomes mishpat. That righteousness in the Old Testament isn't about promoting individual piety, but it is doing the work of restoration. 
And of course, Christ is our justice. He is our, he is our Selah. He is our peace, that Shalom, oh, where nothing is broken and everything is restored. And he is, in a sense, he's our justice, right? He's our restorer. He enables us to put our right acts into play of justice. So when I think of the word resistance, I think of how the status quo is not righteousness and justice. And, may, and while we all pray and hope we will be there and believe that we will be there, um, that on this side of eternity, that we as the people of God need to be honest and that we need to do that ups, uphill stream. So if you can imagine injustice and oppression is actually the status quo and that we as the people of God walk upstream in that resistance. And so I don't think we should be like torching, you know, front lawns and, you know, and that's not the word resistance to me. That is this pressure that things should not be this way. And we need to, like I said, join the prophets of old. And I don't want to just have empty speech. You know, I talk a lot in my book about 1 John 3, 18, that we cannot continue to love in words and in speech, but in action and in truth. And so this book really identifies what I what I believe our Christian public witness is lacking, which is the honesty that we don't have streams and status quo of righteousness and justice, and that we need to do righteous work to push back so that our righteousness, our actions would be a restorative work, and that we can believe that restoration is beyond our own individual spiritual formation but that it encompasses what justice encompasses, which is the whole. And I will end with saying this. It's not okay if me and my family do okay and my neighbor's families don't because justice requires that we all move forward in restorative, you know, flourishing together. I think you really, first of all, thank you, Michelle. That's, yeah, that's such a beautiful vision of what resistance looks like. And, and you touched on it at the end, but could you even tease out a little bit about how you would define kingdom justice? Um, because I think some people may think it's this, you know, it's, it's, it's just about making sure that equity or equality and all these different things. But yeah, how, how do you define that? Yeah, well, I will just say this, equity and equality is good. <laughs> It's a good thing. Yeah. And I think it encompasses it. You know, I've been doing this work a really long time and I have butt up against a lot of different phases of how the church is fickle with the word justice. And I really wanted to quantify what I meant in kingdom justice so that people were not naturally resistant. Like, well, I'm in this camp and I think the word social justice is awful, or I'm in this camp because I think justice is a secular word or it connotates this image. And so I'm really trying to recenter us as our theology and praxis that justice is actually a biblical word. That if you are true to, you know, reading from Genesis all the way to Revelations and, and you have any little legs in theology, you will know that justice is central to the Old Testament. You can't get around the justice of God. And it is from the beginning of time when everything that was created good and connected, you know, that Hebrew word tov, where everything is good and functional and connected, was broken. Um, and, you know, evil was now on full display. And so then God promises because of his justice, this restoration. So it's a biblical word that we use very little actually in the church, but 
it is used so much in secular contexts that we're afraid of it. And I want us to reclaim it. So really, it was just trying to help us understand our theology. And it's not limited to the Old Testament. If you're a Greek scholar, you know that the word justice and righteousness can is the same Greek word. And that if you began to just move out the word righteousness and put in justice, you might read the New Testament very, very differently than than you have. And so I wanted, like I said, it was kingdom justice because there's so many visceral responses to a biblical word. And then social justice was having its day in the church for a little bit, but I've noticed the pendulum swing. It's like, well, now it's, we're going to vilify that. And I'm always, I'm always, like I said, I've done this work a long time and that is just such a mystery to me. I'm like, how can you, you know, discount what literally is metaphorically described as the foundations of God's throne, which is justice and righteousness. And how can you set righteousness different than justice? Don't you understand how they work together that you can't have righteousness without justice? And that in the New Testament in Greek, you know, they they are the same Greek word. And so I just really wanted, honestly, pastors and, and ministry leaders to embrace the theological implications of justice and Christ and the kingdom that he ushered in as our peace, as our justice, as our Mm. restoration. Mm. So give us a picture of what it might look like for um, a pastor in particular, for um, he or she to begin to become aware and then to begin to lead, uh, to, to explore on their own and then to lead their community into resistance mm-hmm. and repair. And I wonder if you have any stories of, of <laughs> pastors or churches that you know that have, have uh, moved in that direction and made those shifts. Yeah, so many stories, so many stories. I don't think we have time for, for many of those stories. That's why you have to buy the book, right? So in the, both the first book and the second book talk about this. So you know, in my introduction, I, I talked about moving, making this decision to move into a community. I have roots in another community. And, you know, I just became a, a sort of a transplant in a community that really opened up my eyes. But I didn't just come here by myself. I tried to bring my community with me. Like, you know, if we're going to do community development programming, you know, where are we getting the funding? And, you know, so we have this whole church organism of outreach and development ministries that some churches fund and some churches do, but together we do them. And that's actually how I started doing a lot of organizing of pastors. So in 2007, there was another election because we have those a lot of times, and there was a very negative anti-immigrant narrative happening. And so I live in a community where my zip code 86% is Latino. And that's, you're just not going to get around the conversation about immigrants for sure. And while I did not know to the extent of immigration policy, I later learned very quickly, you know, that was one of those things that I needed to learn a lot about. I knew the way people were talking about my neighbors was nothing, you know, there was nothing Christian about it. And so a group of us that were receiving funds decided to start meeting and like, what are we going to do? Because we can't keep taking dollars to help immigrants, knowing that a lot of the people in the pews of the churches that support us are holding contempt in their heart and fear around immigrants. And so we actually started, okay, what can we do? So we're going to have meetings with pastors and we're going to have meetings with business leaders and their pastors and educate them on the relational piece. And I had do have a policy degree. Like that was my response. I didn't go to seminary after ministry, you know, being in ministry for a while. So my husband has a seminary degree. I'm going to get my master's in public policy and, and try to understand that. So I did that a few years into 
you know, the kid put the kid, you know, the kids went to night school. We had little kids at the time. I went to night school a couple nights a week for a few years just so I get smarter in policy. And I share that because we would have these pastors meetings where we would talk theology and we would talk public policy. But at the end of the day, we talked about our church and our communities and how can we work together to educate people in the pews around the theology of God's heart for the immigrant and how we can join them. And so I did that work for a very long time. Um, and I still do, but that was a, that was like, it wasn't my like paying day job, but it was like the side hustle that grew into a really big job because it was such an important work at that time. And so what we, we did was a lot of those private meetings, but we began to encourage pastors to do events around God's heart for the immigrant not to preach about immigration from their pulpit, but to invite us in. This is a ministry you support. Can we bring our young people? Can we talk about what it's like? Can we start to build down the barriers between our communities and not us just take a check and you guys don't change? Like, how can we have this common shared discipleship? So we did. And there's some wild and crazy stories. I learned a lot of what not to do, but I also learned a lot of what to do. And it ended up being a really beautiful and redemptive thing. And you know, after many, many years of moving from an awareness to education engagement, it ended up being like, okay, pastors are going to DC to advocate. And, you know, we're, we're working as a church to not just donate money and have a political opinion, but really get to know the people and the stories and understand that the law that we have in the United States is actually a contract. And when the contract doesn't work or it's unjust, we need to change it. And I think that's an important piece when you navigate into some of these waters is one, my biggest, you know, as I think about the audience who's listening, do not just talk about an issue, get to know people who are impacted. And typically it, you know, you are beginning, they're not, you probably don't see them. They're in your community. They're probably washing the dishes at the restaurant. You know, they're, they're probably a, a slice or a segment of your schools. You know, you have to ask God to open your eyes to see people and to see where they are and how you can get to know them. And sometimes it starts with an individual relationship, but don't ever make it about you having an individual relationship. You know, we don't, we don't have prizes. Like I'm the white person with the brown friend. That's scandalous. This is, I'm a part of the body of Christ. I'm a part of being an agent of salt and light in the world. I need to have my eyes open to the vast world that we live in and how can we engage it with integrity together. And when you do those kinds of things, you're going to find yourself. I mean, this was not my goal. Let me just tell you, I have a math and a music degree and I was going to be a pastor's wife. I was going to, I'm a musician. So I was going to play the piano. Like I was going to be just this very good girl that did things. And you know what? I still am a good girl. I'm an Enneagram one. So like rules are very important to me. <laughs> But when you start loving your neighbor as yourself, you're going to find yourself doing very radical things. So I'd say, pastors, pray that God opens your eyes to the, the, the vast amount of neighbors, not that live next to you, but that are in your world and that you're serving in your church and get to know them, not as a project or a target, but as human beings and find out how you interact, you know, and how the world, how you see the world through different lenses and join that. And it will change you radically. I th thank you. Um, I appreciate that prayer for uh, for pastors. But it's interesting because I think about the pastor who may be listening, who may be feeling a little bit of guilt or shame, um, and just even thinking of like maybe ways that pastors can get in the way of people who are passionate about 
kingdom justice. What would you have to say about that? Yeah. Because I feel like we do, and I don't think we do it on purpose, yeah. but it's like I, I've, I've had these moments of, there was this moment of like clarity the other day. I was reading through Luke's gospel again, and, and Luke 4, you know, love the passage, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. And what I recognize is that there are people in my community that read that whole passage as just deeply spiritual. And there are people that read that whole passage as deeply physical, mm. like there's action. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think, yeah, I, I, I'm just, I'm curious about how pastors get in the way for people who are passionate about that and seeing them move away from the church because the church doesn't feel like. Yeah. And I will say that a majority of those kinds of people in churches are women. From my, what I've experienced, there are a majority of women, and and that is a whole other podcast and conversation about their voices. And I don't, I don't mean that in a guilt and shame thing, but it is just the reality. And what I watched yeah. pastors do, and I don't, I don't, I don't know if there's just one right thing. Let me just start by saying I have a lot of experience, and I've watched pastors say, "I want you to meet this woman who runs, you know, the food pantry and works with immigrants," or you know, like it. it tangentially, I kind of find the person who's sort of passionate about it. And I meet with them and their biggest complaint is the pastor doesn't seem to care. He, you know, just, he's just sort of, you know, kind of making a little bit of amends here and there, but he's the one that we need to really, you know, powerfully motivate the church. So sometimes that's like a little bit of a division too. And so I'm always grateful to be sent to the person who feels passionate about it, but I also feel their angst because it shouldn't be this dichotomy in silos. The church in general should be just like another podcast for you should be communal and not, and not siloed. Like where does the heart of God's justice even fit in sort of the triangle of our in up and out ministries? You know, I, what I see a lot of times is sort of if justice is even allowed, all right, it's kind of like on this wing, Oh, we, we have these outreach ministries. We do this, 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 and then we do justice. And I'm like, please don't do that. And we have Micah six, eight. So it's like, Oh, that's where we're supposed to do justice. I'm like, yeah, let, let's put like Jesus and God's justice in the, in the triangle. Like, God's love that motivates us, God's justice, you know, so that when we do our up development, we understand the heart of God. You know, when we do our in small groups, that's central to who, you know, we are informing and then that the reason we express out. So, so there's some real discipleship and theological shifts that need to take place in general. Um, to, so that's, that's just one thing. So there's a tension a lot of times, you know, between that group that, I think we really need to to sit with and think about, and and I will talk about the guilt and shame piece, okay? Because there's, I feel like guilt, shame, and fear are the three reasons we don't speak up, and the fear I've talked to a little bit about, you know, the white Christian moderate. I'm kind of afraid my elder boards go, and I've and I've watched some angry elder boards. You know, like there's some really great strategies. I've watched a whole pastoral team, you know, like this whole group in Greeley, Colorado, decided they were going to preach about immigration for an entire month. God's heart for the immigrant. They're gonna they were going to do it. And they, they all decided to do it. So people couldn't run to the other church. Like this was a major strategy of theirs. And I, that's, I just, I'm very proud of them. You know, everybody kind of squirmed until they all sort of submitted to, okay, at least I'll think about, you know, this conversation um, in that way. So that, so fear is one piece and that's just not the spirit that we should be ever fueling in anything. You know, we are, we've been given a spirit of power and love and of a sound mind. And it's a shame that we even allow ourselves to stay awake to wonder, should we preach, you know, the heart of God, but guilt and shame are really, really important. So I teach a class at Denver seminary called social concerns and community development and social concerns are sort of the 
the results of, of injustice. So we see, you know, healthcare and um, housing instability, food security, we could list a ton, sex trafficking, all the different social concerns, but they only ever stem from three streams immigration, poverty, and racism. And, you know, there's a lot of shame and guilt around racism, mostly because it is sort of this human man-made construct. When we look at the Old Testament, we see that God has orchestrated the law so that immigrants, people who have always been on the move, they're going to stay on the move, that they're always going to be vulnerable, and people are always going to be poor. I'm not everybody, but there's going to be poverty. That doesn't mean we just leave it there, but we need to always be addressing poverty. We always, you know, in people impacted by poverty and immigration, and racism is this convoluted human thing that started way before the United States, you know, literally the power struggle of men and women kind of morphed into who's more important and superior. And we see it all throughout history, but there's a lot of guilt and shame specifically within white communities. And I will just say this, that is a huge barrier. Shame is this idea that you are a bad person. Guilt is you've actually done something. And so I've heard pastors even say, I never owned slaves. Why are you guilting me with this? Okay, well, you never owned slaves. You, you shouldn't feel guilty about it. This is not something that you've done. You don't have to apologize for it. You know, guilt is, I feel guilty. I've done something wrong. I apologize for it. I make it right. Shame is this cloud that literally shuts you down that somehow I'm a bad person. And when I hear those kind of comment questions, like comments, pushbacks, like, well, I didn't own slaves. You're basically cueing to me, you have a ton of shame around it and you don't know what to do with it. And shame isn't, I did something wrong. It is, I am this bad person. And I just don't think that that's, we have to deal with that. We have to deal with our shame and, and really understand that we cannot move forward without it. Because if you are operating in this shame, you will have a natural resistance because one of the biggest killers to empathy, which is the bridge that actually connects you, regardless of experience, you cannot be empathetic and hold shame. You just can't. And so I'm not going to have an experience as an African-American, I'm not going to have an experience as a man, you know, like I actually need you guys to help me understand what it means to be um, a white male Christian in the church. I literally don't know. I have a good idea because I'm married to it and I've birthed it. You know, I got a couple men grown sons, but I still don't totally know what it's like. You're not going to be able to, you, you do not apologize, feel guilty or shame that you don't understand what it is to be a woman. There's no way you can, but how do we know? Well, I'm, I'm a human, so I have emotions, so, and I have feelings. So when you tell me this is how you feel, I can connect to that feeling, even though I can't have that shared experience. And so that is the bridge to everything for, for someone who's incarcerated. I mean, if you don't have the shared experiences, don't feel guilty about that. Don't feel shame about that. Be curious. You know, find out how you can connect to that emotion. So I think we have a lot of internal work to do with our fear, our guilt, and our shame so that we are not limited to by and having barriers to empathy, barriers to curiosity, and barriers to the literal things that will help us thrive in our relationships with people outside our own experience. Mm. By the way, I talk mm. about that in my book. You should buy Join the Resistance. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I mean, I, I will say this: my book is broken up into three parts. I'm a mathematician by tra by training, and I just think logic is a really great thing. So the way you join the resistance is you, one, serve the movement, two, you stay at the table, three, you're, you help your people. I wrote it to a white Christian audience because I'm a white Christian. 
but I tried to make it very generous in my Christian orthodoxy because I have both Catholic and evangelical roots. I also know that I've done this work a long time in very a lot of different racial and cultural contexts. And so those three principles stand. But the book starts out to really help white people understand that you can be a part of the work. And then probably by chapter three and four, you know, everybody in their racial and cultural context will be able to identify. But but as far as like serving the movement, that's how you step in. The movement doesn't start when you become aware of it. You're stepping into something that's been going on for a while. And then the second piece, stay at the table, the discipline of resilience when you do lose, when you don't get what you want, when you don't feel like you're being heard. I mean, like I talk a lot about that discipline of staying. And then the third one, which is where I have some of that empathy is helping your people. You know, we need more people to join the effort, that collective effort, and we all have roles to play. You know, I'm probably not going to be your go-to person to lead, you know, African-American Pentecostal leaders into this movement. I mean, you can probably have me come and talk a little bit, but that isn't my, you know, that's not my Indigenous, I'm indigenous somewhere. I'm indigenous to white, you know, evangelical Christian America. And so I need to help my people. And you can't help people you don't love. And you can't help people that you don't want to bridge empathetic, you know, peace um, bridges towards. And you can't help a people when you're like always skeptical and angry. So the last three chapters are very convicting, even as I've written them, as I continue to read them, because you do it rooted in love. You do it rooted in peace and you do the work rooted in joy. So thanks for that plug, by the way. <laughs> Even though you no. <laughs> I mean, my, my guess is right now people are hitting I the pause so. button on this I, thing. I and like, Man, I hate writing. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think as we're kind of winding this conversation down, we clearly have two more podcasts that we have to do with you. One chatting with, yeah, just the reality of, of, of being a, a woman in the church. Mm-hmm. I mean, that I think that's something that we have had quite a few guests speak to, and it's been so helpful um, because it's, yeah, it's the body. The body mm-hmm. of Christ is this big, beautiful, mm-hmm. you know, witness, and it's very diverse, very different. And I appreciate too, just the way you frame guilt and shame. I think that's really helpful. And, and I think for, as a white pastor, it's, it, there, there is so much shame that I've seen that I've experienced in the conversation. Cause it's like, as a pastor, we live in this place where we feel like we have to have the answer for everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, although we know that that's not true, but when it's something that's so complex and so big, mm-hmm. where do you go? And I just, I appreciate how you're framing this whole conversation. It's really helpful, but how can pastors stay healthy Mm. as they engage in kingdom justice with their church. Yeah. Yeah. Always be speaking to the theological framework. Don't be afraid that it's not there. That has probably been my biggest encouragement as a theologian on a journey, which is, oh, wow, God, you had a lot to say about it. How did I miss it before? And recircling back. And that's why in the book, I, I highlight nine prophets because I, I would have missed them. I would have missed them. Hmm. You know, prophets are there to foretell and foretell. So yeah, there's a lot of really good hints of what was to come. And, and that's really amazing. 
That's amazing. It helps connect our story. It helps give us hope that there's, you know, things that have happened are good and that that were projected that have already happened and the things that haven't, we can continue to stay in it with perseverance and faith, but there's a lot more there. And so I just want to really encourage us to keep asking God to help us open up our eyes to the rich theology that we have in a Christian public witness. That was probably my number one um suggestion there's other things too but that would be my number one which is great because pastors love to read the bible that's their favorite thing you know like i've got so many books i'm married to a pastor it's like the books of of how i can relook at this and you know sometimes we also read the stuff we already believe so we not only hang out in the books we know but then we hang out with the authors that we know you know we should be reading and listening to people of color, global leaders. And I mean, that is a really, that is so rich. You know, I, I do feel like we, just like I said, I, my husband's a pastor. He comes from a whole line of pastors. And I, and I was going to say just the, the level of, of the amount of reading is high. The, the para, you know, paradigms of who they're reading, very, very small. So not only should you be reading the Bible desperately recognizing the theological framework, but who else are you listening to? You know, if you are not being shaped and framed by black pastors, you are going to miss the entire resistance. I mean, like really seriously, the way they read it is incredibly different. Same thing. I mean, like the Brown church is eye-opening. Robert Chow Romero, amazing theologian, historian, lawyer, fantastic book to really help us understand the Latino community. Yeah. So I think we need to be reading women. I think we need to be reading people globally to really expand our view. Michelle, thanks so much for being with us and for giving us this uh, expansive view of kingdom justice and what it might look like to step into that. Uh, We've been asking uh, our podcast guests to kind of leave our our listeners, particularly our pastors who are listening on a Monday morning, just with a blessing. And I'm wondering if you could take us out that way. Yeah, no, thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm actually going to read the peace prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. And as you hear the word peace in this prayer, remember, we're not peacekeepers. We're not trying to keep this status quo. We're peacemakers. And so when we pray this peace, we're praying a shalom of wholeness and restoration and that we would honestly embrace the work that's needed to bring about peace. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope, where there is darkness, light, where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be as understood as to understand, to be loved as to love, for it is giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.